0: If you would, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. The whole Brooks family has been sick for a while. Um, Caroline, my six-year-old, was sick for a lot of last week, and so she got to sit on the couch and watch TV, which is a treat for her. And um, after watching TV for a while, she came to Lauren and she said, Oh, mama, mama. You have got to hear this. Come quick. Come quick. And so Lauren went and Caroline showed her on TV this infomercial for the Expressomatic. Matic. And she was enthralled with this Espresso Matic. She actually took notes. And uh, she said, Mama, it will change your life. And she said, For these reasons. And, and she went on and she said, You can actually make stuffed French toast. I don't know what that is, but you can make it with the Expressomatic." Matic. And in just three minutes, grilled cheese, it's just perfect. And she wrote down all this, even the phone number, and gave it and said, oh, mama, please. We've got to have this. There's products like that 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 really appeal to us. And and Caroline was absolutely enthralled. Apparently, they target that for six-year-olds. But she, she was enthralled. And we could get enthralled a lot as Christians with some of the latest spiritual fads that are out there. You know, we've, we've got to, uh, to embrace the latest Christian products. We need to uh, be sure we, we are up with the latest worship music trends. Uh, maybe read a certain book that's absolutely going to change your life. You've got to read this book. Or, or perhaps there's a new way to be filled with the Spirit of God. You know, you just got to do this and you're going to be filled. Yet here in Jonah, which we are going through, Read in just a minute. We are reminded of what really makes up the Christian faith. It's faith, repentance, obedience, understanding the gospel. That's it. There's nothing new here. There's no new exciting way to relate to God. It's just repenting of your sins. Obeying God's Word. Deepening your understanding of the Gospel. That's it. And Jonah is a terrific reminder of this. And we need reminding of this because this is something we never outgrow. We don't move on to the next thing. This will always be part of our Christian life. Always part of our Christian walk. And the Gospel here, it is so simple, it can be understood by a child... Yet it's so deep and it's so rich that you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to comprehend it, trying to get it into your heart. And we see that in Jonah here. He has these terrific moments of insight. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago in, in chapter 2. It's like he really gets it. And then we come to chapter 4 here and everything just kind of falls apart. And we realize, well, there's a lot of highs and lows in his life. So read with me chapter 4. It's also in your worship guide. And I actually want to back up one verse, last verse of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, Is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Pray with me. God, I ask that you would show us in these next few moments, Your heart for the city. Show us Your heart for us and how You desire the Gospel to so radically change us that this overflows into our households, into our communities, into this city. Lord, teach us in a way that I can never teach us. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away, and not be remembered anymore, but Lord, let your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Um, This story gives me a lot of hope, especially as a pastor, it gives me a lot of hope, Um, because here's a man who's absolutely full of sin, and he's being used by the Lord, I mean, he's a disobedient, unloving bigot is pretty much the only way to describe him. And yet he goes and he preaches a five-word sermon. It's only five words in Hebrew. Five-word sermon to the New York City or to the Los Angeles of his day. And everybody repents. From, from the king to the slaves, they all repent. And you got around the time of Jonah, you've got all these other faithful prophets that were living about this time. You have Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel. You've got all these prophets who were very faithful, who were obedient. God sent them to do some hard things, to preach some hard messages, and they did it, and they saw absolutely zero fruit. These faithful, obedient prophets go and they preach and they do exactly as they're told and they get zero results. Here comes Jonah. He doesn't even want to do it. He's angry. He ticked off, says five words, and the entire city repents. The entire city. Even the cows. The only other time we see anything close to this in history is in Pentecost. If remember that? You have Peter... Another failure. One who uh, actually denied even knowing the Lord to a little girl. And yet Peter rushes out of the room after that enormous failure and he preaches and thousands repent and they come to know the Lord. Just like that. And when you you see this, this should humble you. It should also give you a whole lot of hope. It should humble you and it should give you hope. Like Jeff mentioned last week, we see that God is sovereign. He will accomplish His purpose. Whether we fail, whether we succeed, whether we are half-hearted, whether we are hateful, whether we are loving, He will accomplish His purpose. And actually often it's our failures that qualify us to be used by God. You see that with Peter and you see that with Jonah. Jonah. Because when, you know, you sink down to the bottom of the ocean, all of a sudden you gain a little understanding of grace. Or Peter, when you deny Jesus to a servant girl, you understand grace. And so you're equipped to give that message. And we're going to look at tonight, we're going to look how grace invades us. God pursues us with His grace as individuals, but it's not to stop there. It's to go to the cities. You know, at the beginning of chapter 4, Finally, we get insight as to why Jonah ran away from God. The, the author was trying to keep it hidden until the very end so you would keep guessing. But we, we've taken some sneak peeks in the last few weeks. But he's ticked off at God because God is gracious and merciful. I mean, it's really quite hilarious. It says, you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, therefore, take my life. You're all those good things, therefore I want to die. And he's actually quoting from what Jeff read earlier to start the service, Exodus 34. A very familiar passage, it's when Moses, he prays to God and he says, God, show me your glory. And God, he actually says, okay, I will, but this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock on a put my hand on you, and and I'll just let you see me as I walk by. And when the Lord walks by, He declares this, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses, you want to see my glory? Moses, you want to understand who I am? I am gracious, and merciful, and I am slow to anger. That is who I am. And so here when you see Jonah getting angry, because God is these things, he's getting angry at God himself. He is, he is in a sense, rejecting God himself because this is who God is. God says, I'm Yahweh, I'm Yahweh, I am. Merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And Jonah looks at him and says, I know you're those things, and I just don't want any part of that. And he's just angry. He's so angry he wants to die. Which makes you you just got to ask the question, why is Jonah so angry here at this? I mean, Jonah was just saved from death because God is gracious. Seems like he would be very thankful for this, but he's not. He's ticked. You know, we get angry when something we love is threatened. That's what produces anger. When something you love is threatened, you get angry. You need to understand that anger itself is not a sin. Um, Actually,. Paul says in Ephesians, he says, be angry and don't sin. He actually commands every one of you to be angry at times. It's a God-given emotion to get you to do something. The key is not to sin. But you get angry when something you love is threatened. You know, if if somebody was trying to steal my wife away and I got angry about that, that's a good God-given emotion. I should be angry because marriage is worth protecting. Marriage is something I love and it is threatened. You see Jesus get angry in the temple. Um, When he looks around, there's all these money changers and there's all these cattle around and and nobody is really even thinking about the Lord. And so he overturns the tables, he gets a whip and he drives people out and he gets very angry because something he loves is being threatened. The temple, and whom the temple points, is being threatened. And so he gets angry. It's a good anger. So what is it here that Jonah loves so much that is being threatened? It's it's obviously not the Ninevites, because he doesn't love the Ninevites. It's not a love for God. The thing that Jonah loves so much here is his own self-righteousness. That's it. He loves feeling superior to those Ninevites. He loves looking down on those sinners. He loves, you know, watching the TV and when a corrupt politician comes up or they show that he had an affair saying, I'm not like that. And so by understanding here that God saves by grace, that's the only way that God saves, is God is gracious, then he has to understand that he is no different than the Ninevites. He he can in no way claim to be any better than these enemies. And and when that starts sinking in, when his own self-righteousness, his own pride, his own superiority starts crumbling in, is threatened, he lashes out in anger. There's an old saying, It says, it's not your sins that keep you out of heaven. It's your damnable good works. It's not your sins that keep you out of heaven. It's your damnable good works. It's when you just want to hold to the fact that you're so much better and you're so good. And that's why we sing hymns like, no more my God. When it says, the best obedience of my hands dares not appear before your throne. But faith can answer your demands by pleading what? Thy son is done. For Jonah, his good works, his standing as a prophet is nothing but a worthless idol, and so he is forsaking the grace that could be his. But remember, this is about the gospel. This story is about the gospel. And so God doesn't say, Fine. God is slow to anger. And kind of like when Adam sins in the garden, he begins asking Adam questions. He's pursuing him. God pursues Jonah here. Jonah goes, you know, and he, he sits on top of some hill. He's overlooking Nineveh. You can actually go there today. My brother one time, he called me up. He goes, guess where I'm at? It's like, where? He goes, I'm on the hill overlooking Nineveh. It's like, you can go and you can look. And Nineveh, it wasn't destroyed here. But Jonah is wanting it so bad. He wants, you know, fire, lightning, you know, sulfur come raining down. Doesn't happen. God appoints this plant, grows up really quick over him, gives him shade. He says he's exceedingly happy about the plant. I like that. Then God destroys it with a worm, and he's really mad about that. And he wants to die. And look at verse 9. God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said he pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did he make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle. God says if you truly understand the gospel, if you understand grace, you're going to have a heart for the city. God loves the city. It's all throughout Scripture, God's heart for the city. We've looked at this as a church. The opening pages in your Bible, God places man in a garden. But the closing pages of your Bible, you have us living forever in a glorious city. That's the the movement of the Bible. You start with a couple in a garden, but you end in a city. In Revelation 21, it tells us that the city is 1,380 miles wide, 1,380 miles long. It's this huge, glorious city. Jesus lives on Main Street and City Center. But our future is an urban future. We're all going to be city dwellers. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham longed to live in this coming city. In chapter 11, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God's a city builder. He's an urban planner. That's what God God is. And not just of the new Jerusalem, but of all cities. Even the city of Nineveh was a creation of God. Even though this city is so full of evil and violence, God, He says, look at that plant. Did you labor over that plant? I labored over it. Just like I have labored over the city of Nineveh. Yes, it's full of evil. Yes, it's full of violence. But I have labored over it. I have worked hard over it. God loves it. Christians would do really well to uh, understand the story of Jonah. Especially his calling Chapter 1 begins. It says, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. It says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for its evil has come up to me. And that phrase, the evil has come up, means that there is evil in the city that keeps getting worse and worse. And worse, it's piling on itself. More and more violence. More and more greed. This evil is just getting big and big and it's reaching all the way up to God. He says, therefore, since the city is getting more evil, Jonah, you're to go to the city. Which is the exact opposite of what Christians do. When the city gets worse and worse and worse, Christians, leave the city. Let it stew in its own juices. You know, there's some Christians who actually kind of rejoice in this kind of sick way over the, uh, the demise of the city. But God says, when the evil comes up, you go out. You know, in Birmingham, um, we've seen a lot of violence over the years. Um, if you go to um, the website for the census or to the FBI, you'll get some statistics You know, in 1960, there were 340,000 people living in the city of Birmingham. And that's just in the city. This is not like Greater Birmingham, you know, or Mountain Brook or in Hoover. This is just within the city. 340,000 in 1960. In 2000, there was only 240,000. So in 40 years, Birmingham lost 100,000 of its residents. Many, many churches left. Or I guess a better word would be fled. Once they saw the demise of the city, they got the heck out of there. Currently, according to the FBI, Birmingham has the seventh highest murder rate. As the eighth is eighth highest in violent crime. Birmingham is. And yet, as a whole, the church has fled the city. Christians look at the violence, they look at the crime, they look at all those things, and they kind of secretly think serves them right. Serves them right. Reaping what they sow. And God looks at the city, and He sees the violence rising, and He sees the crime rising, and He says, Okay, go into the city. Go into the city. Share the gospel. You don't leave the city. You go into the city. Don't abandon it. I have labored over Nineveh. I have labored over Birmingham. Won't you labor with me? And what you see here is nothing more than the heart of Jesus. You know, in Luke 13, which we'll get to in a few months, we see Jesus grieving over the city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets, stones those who God sends to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. And so you see Jesus grieving over the demise of the city. So when the city becomes evil, we need to grieve over it. These cities are a gift from God. I find it interesting saying cities are a gift from God. You know, Christians believe that marriage is a gift from God. Rightly so. It's it's this beautiful institution. It's something that God has created. We, but currently we live in a day where the sanctity of marriage is attacked. You know, divorce is rampant. And uh, yet the church fights for marriage. We fight for it, rightly so. Like, yes, we see evil coming into the marriage um, institution. And and yet we're going to fight for this. And here, you know, in the city, you have this God-given institution here. Something he has labored over, and we look at it, and when we see evil creeping into it, we don't fight for it. We leave it. Now, I'm not saying that all of you need to move into the city. I'm not saying that at all. But in a very similar way that if you're single, and God's called you to singleness, and and you see the demise of some marriages, you don't rejoice over it, because you'd be a fool to do that, knowing that society is built on healthy marriages. No, you will work for those healthy marriages. You will rejoice in healthy marriages in the same way if God hasn't called you to be live in the city, don't rejoice at its demise. You'd be a fool to. Work for its good because it's the engines that drive society. If you were to pick up our um, About Us pamphlets, which we have out there, you'll see our vision statement, which says, we believe that God has called us to be part of the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of this city and the world. And when you pick up one of our little cards um, out there also, it says, we believe that Jesus, our Redeemer, has called us to be part of the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of His people, His cities, and His world. And we don't just say of his people and his world. We actually recognize that God has a special heart for the cities. He has a special plan for the cities. And we want to be part of the redemption of that. There is a reason in your Bible, you know, in the New Testament, you're not going to get Paul writing a letter to, you know, the country little town of Genoa. You know, the epistle to Arbilo. A little town that was around during his time. There aren't any letters to Merum or Athamna to other little towns. But you do find letters to the Romans, letters to Corinth, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Colossae, Galatia, Philippi. The urban centers of his day is where he went. Paul, when he went to go spread the gospel, he skipped over every little country town and he went straight for the cities. It's not because he didn't care about those who lived in the suburbs or who lived in the country or thought that God didn't care for them. God cares for them, God loves them just as much. But he knew that if you win all the countryside and don't win the city, you've lost. But if you win the city, you'll win the countryside. Because the cities are the engines that drive society. And you see this. I mean, you see this unfold in early Christian history. You know, Christian, Christianity completely overtook Rome within a few centuries. And the reason it did is because Christians stayed in the cities. I mean, it's pretty amazing. They were, the Christian movement was all slaves and the poor, dominantly slaves and the poor and yet it overtook Rome in a few centuries because they refused to leave the cities when violence would come into the cities they didn't leave when plagues would go all through the cities they stayed and eventually Rome was changed the early christians understood their calling to the city Now, the reason that God loves the city, the reason that he labors over this, is because God loves people, and there's a lot of people in a city. That's why he loves the city. And he's got this special plan for the city. I mean, we, yes, the city has fallen, but you can still see so many beautiful things in the city. If, if you're a homeless person, where are you going to go? Are you, are you going to go out into the suburbs? Or are you going to go out into the country? You go to the city. Soup kitchens are in the city. You'll often find a bed in the city. If you're an immigrant coming in and you don't speak the language, you don't speak English, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the city where you can find, you know, uh, you can be both part of your own culture and start learning the new one. It's a very hospitable place to immigrants when they come in. If you're an artist and you really want to improve, where do you go? The city, where you can see all new techniques of how to do your art, and and it will stimulate your mind, and there's even a, a healthy competition there to strive to be better. Even things like if you're a lawyer in a country little town, it would be the exception for you to improve in your legal skills. But move to the city, Where there's thousands of lawyers, thousands of little stimulation there. And you improve. It brings out human potential. We see these things even in a fallen, depraved city. God's got a special plan for the city. He loves it because there's so many people in there. And he describes the people as not knowing their right hand from their left. He doesn't know their right hand from their left, and when God describes the Ninevites this way, it's a very interesting phrase. What He is saying is that these people are so entrenched in their sin, so entrenched in it they don't even have a clue as how to get out. They don't even know which way to turn. It's just a part of life for them. They don't even know the direction to go. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. The businesses there they are so run by greed. They don't know how to operate without cheating people or misleading people. You have the, the teachers there who have, who have grown so apathetic after seeing so little funding and so many overcrowded classrooms, they've forgotten how to care. You see the city just being run down in so many ways that the government offices are so full of corruption, they don't know how to operate without lying. There's nobody there to show them their right hand from their left. That's why the church needs to take a stand. Say, listen, we want to be part of the redemption of this. As Christians, as people who have received the spirit of Christ, the gospel must overflow into the city. Hear those first words of Jonah. Their evil has risen. Therefore, arise and go. The very last verse of this book ends in a question. There's only two books in the Bible that end in a question, and this is one of them. The other one is Nahum, which is also about the Ninevites. And it's very intentional by the author. Because he wants this question to linger. He, he wants this question just to sit with you. And so he's not going to give you the answer. You don't really know what happens to Jonah. You don't know. It's just, this question is just going to sit with you. Because this question is actually directed to you. He wants you to identify with this. I mean, who else are you going to identify with in this book? God? The Ninevites, you identify with Jonah. The questions to you. And I know it's so easy to look down on Jonah. You know, a a guy who loves plants more than he loves people. You know, Jonah looks down on the Ninevites. We look down on Jonah. We all have our little, you know, superiority complex. But before you judge him, at least let me speak to me before I judge him, because this has really hit me hard. I've realized I have to repent. I often care more about my lawn than I do my neighbor. That's Jonah, caring more about the plant than the Ninevites. I I spend more time thinking about how to get rid of crabgrass than about getting rid of evil within the city. That's Jonah. That is not God's heart, and it's something I have to repent of. Jonah reminds me of my need for the gospel. God has given us grace. He has poured love into us. To change us, that that might love, might go out to the people in this city. I pray you would pray with me. Lord, as your prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 29 May we seek the prosperity of the city, for when it prospers, we prosper. May we seek the shalom of the city, the peace of the city the wholeness of the city. May we seek that. When the evil of the city rises, may we not flee. May we go to the city. May we go to the shelters. May we go to the schools. May we do our tutoring. May we give to the charities. May we invest our lives however you lead us. For those of us who are not called to live in the city, I pray that you would still show us a way we can serve the city. For when it prospers, we prosper. The city is a gift from you. I think this message is so important for us as a church. So important as we start off and we try to understand the gospel and serve this city. Burn it in our hearts. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.